Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is there further risk in the banking sector? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, March 10, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined by Warren Pies, co-founder of 314 Research. The second half of this show is just for Real Vision members. So if you want, don't want to miss it, you can sign up by using the link in the description or scanning the QR code on the screen. Let's jump right into today's market analysis. Warren, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mark, lots going on in markets right now. Markets uh, moving quickly on some of the stuff that we're seeing. Obviously, uh, the big story of the day is SVB uh, currently going, uh, being taken over by regulators, by FDIC. It's a big story. Uh, lots to talk about from a macro perspective. Warren, where do you want to begin? Gee, uh, I think this is just kind of a microcosm of the, you know, really if we zoom out for a second and say what's been the defining feature of this market this year, I think it's been a battle between the tape and the Fed. And our view has been that the Fed is going to win this battle. You can't get bullish on this breakout. And this is an example why I think this is the first casualty of potentially more. Warren, uh, let's break this down for people who are relatively new to this space. What does that mean, a battle between the tape and the Fed? And what's the significance of that? Well, this, the, the, the significance is that, you know, I think everyone's trying to navigate markets and just like in life, you know, we all have kind of our, our truisms or, you know, the little words of wisdom that we like to live by. Well, traders or investors have a couple themselves. I used to work at Ned Davis Research. Ned, the founder, and Marty Zweig were known for their rules of research, rules of trading. And the two big ones are don't fight the tape, meaning if the market's going up, don't don't fight against it and the right. other don't fight the fed and so this year we've seen a number of positive tape developments you know we broke above the 200 day moving average we're back below it now nasdaq above its 40 week average 50 day above the 200 day we saw breadth thrusts which are you know when you have a broad participation where a bunch of the stocks in a large universe are breaking out into uh, uh relatively speaking so like say above their 10-day moving average 90 percent of stocks in the russell 3000 above their 10-day moving average all these things fired um and technicians as a result became very bullish and then on the other hand though you have the fed uh, so under you're, you're almost describing uh warren this intense paradox here where you have this uh immovable object being hit by the unstoppable force if you can't uh sort of simultaneously not fight the fed and not fight the tape what do you do 
Right. Well, that was the, that's the, I think why it's been such a difficult market. I've fielded a lot of calls from clients this year who were nervous. They were more or less bearish coming into the year. Like I think most consensus was in this bear market did what it, what the market always does. It, it inflicted the most possible pain. And my theory for the whole year was we're going to be in this range bound trading uh, environment. 4,000 is what we consider the top of our rough range. But of course, you're not just going to stop at 4,000 and head lower. We broke the 4,300 in August of last year. I expected all this to happen, that the technical indicator would be kind of the thing that sucked everybody in at the top of that range and convinced them of the possibility of a new bull market. And so I think that's what happened. But the Fed, we did a lot of analysis of these technical indicators. And what you really get, if you get deep into it, is that these they're reliable. Price sees through a lot of things. But ultimately, they're much less reliable or accurate during this phase, the hike phase, tightening phase of the Fed cycle. And so our view is that the Fed was the dominant force in this market. It, it would win out. I think that we broke back below the 200-day yesterday, I believe, maybe two days ago. And then I think the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was kind of the you know, cherry on top, really slamming the hammer down, saying, this is the Fed's market still. You know, forget your technical indicators. We have a saying: you can build. You we build conviction on fundamentals, and we manage risk on technicals. We respect technicals, but you can't build a fundamental case on technicals alone. And I think that's very well said. Yeah, very well said. So, what are those fundamentals? What are the most important fundamentals you're looking at, and how are you seeing them right now? Well, let's start with QT for a minute and Fed cycle because I think that's really the the 800 pound gorilla that everybody's well, dealing with right now and, and everyone's trying to catch up on. We've been saying, one of the ways to say that is what would change your mind and your bearishness? And so one of the things we've said is QT timing and Fed hike timing. And we would wanna see, there's a little bit of uncertainty on when the Fed is gonna stop quantitative tightening. Um, you know, the traditional wisdom is that they want to target bank reserves that are about eight to 10% of GDP or total bank assets. And we're at something like 9% or so right now, we're at 300 trillion of reserves. They want to get it down to two and a half. That's traditional wisdom. But you also have Fed Governor Waller and other officials saying, let's, there's $2 trillion parked at the reverse repo. Let's consider that as reserves. So if that's the calculation, we have much farther to go with QT. Um, the reason this matters is kind of, you know, showing up today, you know, QT is, uh, uh, has, has, you know, really it pushes duration out into the market as the Fed lets MBS roll off balance sheet in, in, in uh, treasuries. And the market has a tough time digesting that duration and, and Silicon Valley Bank, really, they're like on the forefront of both rate hikes and QT. And I think that's why they're the first casualty. They're, they're, they're located in Silicon Valley. Their deposits boomed during 2021 and have contracted with the kind of deflating of the tech VC bubble. They took those deposits and they went and bought long dated securities, including MBS, which have been particularly impacted by QT. And so as deposits flee and re, or, or, or pulled from the bank due to kind of just the tech downturn, now right. you have to sell these long duration securities that have all you know suffered massive losses over the last year and right. oh they've got caught them they're kind of between a rock and a hard place and that's why you know basically regulators stepped in today 
Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I'm so glad we're discussing this because this really does sort of wed the macro thesis that you've been talking about, the broader context of what's happening in markets and in macro with the news story of the day. Uh, so, you know, here's the upshot for folks who haven't been following this story as closely. I know a lot of people are. Uh, but look, this is about much more, obviously, than uh, just one bank. It's about much more than just SVP. B, we saw the worst moves on the KBW NASDAQ bank index since the pandemic at the end of the day yesterday. This morning, the plunge in two-year Treasury yields is the most severe since 2008. So these are significant moves, as you said. What's this about? You alluded to it uh, right there, Warren. This is about a run on deposits. We talked about this with Silvergate. Uh, I should say Silvergate was a sponsor of Real Vision Crypto in the past. Uh, but when banks lose deposits, they need to sell other assets down in order to make up for that shortfall. That's the core of the problem here. Uh, when they sell the safest assets, U.S. Treasuries, they need to mark those assets to market. Uh, this is really the core of the problem. This is the challenge that we're talking about here uh, in terms of the broader context of what's happening with quantitative tightening. There's a fantastic article in yesterday's Wall Street Journal uh, by Jonathan Weil and Ben Eisen called Banks Lose Billions in Values After Tech Lender SVB Stumbles. And I want to quote from this here uh, and just get your take on this because I think this really describes the core of the problem and it unpacks some of the functional mechanics of what we see happening in markets now. People may be wondering, for example, you know, obviously, uh, quantitative tightening has been something that's been baked into the cake for some time. We've all been watching it. We've been watching rates rise. Uh, so why does this happen all at once? I think this article explains it very elegantly. Quote, banks don't incur losses on their bond portfolios if they are able to hold on to them until maturity. But if they suddenly have to sell the bonds at a loss to raise cash, that is when accounting rules require them to show the realized losses in their earnings. Indeed, uh, SVB yesterday uh, reported, I believe, $1.8 billion in losses. Okay, to continue, those rules let companies exclude losses on their bonds from earnings if they classify the investments as either available for sale or held to maturity. Sometimes the losses catch investors by surprise, even if the problem has been slowly building and, the fully, and fully disclosed for a long time. And this is the key, at SVB, Unrealized losses had been piling up throughout last year and were visible to anyone reading its financial reports. And this is the, this is the key here, uh, Warren, talking about the broader context. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in February reported that U.S. banks' unrealized losses on available for sale and held to maturity securities totaled $620 billion as of December 31st up from $8 billion a year before the Fed's rate push began. That is a significant increase and a significant number, nearly two-thirds of a trillion dollars uh, of, of unrealized losses uh, on available for sale and held to maturity securities on U.S. bank balance sheets as reported by the FDIC, Warren. Yeah, that's a, it's a big number, but let's, I think it's, and I think everything you said is exactly correct. The thing that's important not to, to miss in that is that, that those unreal loss, unrealized losses don't really matter as long as there are ample reserves deposits in the system. So it kind of starts with the draining of reserves, which is where you know the Fed's balance sheet reduction drains reserves. And it goes back to what we were saying, you know, eight to 10% of nominal GDP is what the target is for reserves or about eight. You know, another way of saying it is 8% of total bank assets is the target for reserves. And that's, we're still well above that threshold. So you should say, hey, everything, liquidity is still you know, just fine in this market. But the problem is, is that 
just like when you have QEed, which pushes liquidity, excess liquidity out into the system, it does it in a lumpy fashion. And when you do QT, you drain that liquidity in a lumpy fashion. And right now, what you're seeing, if you start digging into it, is smaller regional banks, even though Silicon Valley wasn't necessarily a small bank, they're yeah. still one of the more they're still classified as a regional bank. Regional banks have been stuck with a much more difficult liquidity position than the big um, uh, money center banks. And so yeah. that to me is where you're at. It's like, we are all going, if you want to analyze QT correctly, we're going to need to go underneath the surface one level and look at where reserves are, are really um, are centered. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let me throw out a couple of points there. First, uh, for people to understand this, uh, this was the 16th largest bank in the United States, not a small bank by any means, uh, and the second largest bank failure in American history. Now, some of that probably gets distorted by inflation effects, uh, but uh, the reality is after the WAMU debacle, this is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. We should probably say that when you talk about large money center banks, they have a more diverse base of funding uh, than merely customer deposits. Uh, they are, in many cases, they're SIFIs, uh, meaning that they're more tightly regulated than regional banks. Uh, but still, this is something that's material. I'm just looking at my screen right here. A signature bank, something that's familiar to folks in the crypto space, uh, SBNY off nearly 23% uh, in today's trading. PacWest Bank Corp off almost 38%, PACW on NASDAQ. These are major, major declines in share prices that we're seeing investors bake in. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, it goes back to each bank's going to have to be analyzed on its own, but just the general rule of thumb is that smaller regional banks are going to have a harder time. Our very initial analysis of the situation is that on a re reserves to assets uh, or cash to asset kind of basis, smaller banks are hanging out more like 6%, while the larger banks are hanging out at like 10%. So when you blend it all together and say, what's your, what's your aggregate um, headline to, uh, aggregate number? It's like 9%. But within that 9%, there are some pockets of distress. Because again, if you use that 8% rule of thumb for when distress kicks in, there, are, there will be more banks. If the Fed pushes forward with QT, there will, this is not going to be the first. There'll be, it will, there will be others. And so... Um, I think that we all, again, going back to the theme of the day and to the theme of the year in our view is you don't want to fight the Fed. You want to be paying attention to what they're doing with their balance sheet. There's nothing, the Treasury can sterilize what they do with their, with their Treasury securities and depending on what Yellen does with the TGA and what she issues and the duration she does or doesn't push into the market. There's really nothing that the Fed, that the Treasury can do to sterilize the MBS market though and so we've seen mbs spreads well, what does that mean by the way for people who aren't familiar with monetary policy well if the, the fed is allowing uh what is it 90 bill is not really they don't ever hit that target because there's too many uh mortgages aren't being refinanced but let's say the fed's uh rolling off some treasuries and some mbs from their balance sheet every month so they the uh 
the treasury has to pay that back. And theoretically, they would have to issue new debt to replace that. Now, because we had this, you can go back to 2021 and when we had, or 2022, we had a huge influx of tax receipts for the treasury that went into the treasury's bank account, the TGA. So TGA went to almost a trillion dollars of cash. So Yellen back starting in October was able to dip into her bank account and pay back the Fed without issuing new debt. And that's the key. It's sterilized. So now QT is happening, that Fed balance sheet's rolling down, but it's not being, there's no duration or impact being pushed into the market. So that's how she says sterilized, basically, the QT on the treasury side. The mortgage market is stuck in a different position. MBS market just has to absorb the amount of MBS that the, the Fed has backed away. That big buyer is no longer in the market supporting the market. So the market's having to readjust without that big buyer in there. And when our studies show that during periods of QT, that spread between your 30-year treasury and your mortgage bonds, MBS, goes from like 90 basis points to 300 basis points. So you know when you have, let's go back to Silicon Valley Bank, who, you know, not so bright, they take all that big influx of deposits in 2021 and they run out to the MBS market and buy mortgage-backed securities, the thing that's being most impacted by the Fed's quantitative tightening campaign. So they were really the, the, the poster child for this kind, for these dynamics. And, that, and they'll be the earliest because of this weird confluence of where they're located and the customer base that they serve and how those interest rates impacted them, but they won't be the last. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there, Warren. Let's talk a little bit about their customer base. We were saying offline, uh, off camera earlier today that this Silicon Valley bank is one of the go-to banks in the Valley uh, for venture capitalists, uh, for people in private equity. Uh, this really is uh, quite the uh, sort of cottage industry for this bank. And I just want to read one other quote here while we're throwing this stuff out there. This is, again, from the same article from the journal, uh, Jonathan Weil, uh, talking more generally about this. And I want to get your comment on this as well. Quote, the risks are most acute for small lenders. Smaller banks must often pay higher deposit rates to attract customers than mega banks with flashy technology and extensive branch networks. Bank of America paid an average of 96 basis points on deposits in the fourth quarter compared with 1.17% for the industry. Here's the number. Here's the kicker. Here's the number. SVB paid 2.33%. 233 basis points. I mean... You know, this is nearly double uh, the the rate that uh, that the industry was paying, and more than double what B of A was paying. That's a great point, and that's something that uh, my business partner Fernando, who's out in Silicon Valley and used to work in the tech ecosystem, is very familiar with this bank. And something we talked about before this interview is that uh, higher deposit, <laughs> higher rates on deposits is actually a sign of weakness in this market. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you're having to compete really hard on interest rates to attract deposits, it's kind of a red flag at this stage of the cycle. It's perverse. I wish it wasn't like that. But uh, that's a great, I mean, I can't improve on those stats. Those are great stats. Yeah. I think if you just went through and just sorted the entire uh, membership set of banks uh, in the market, the, the highest deposit rates would be the banks that are in the most trouble in this environment. The lowest deposit rates would be the banks that are the strongest and I, you could expect it to go somewhat by region and market cap. Uh, right. 
Yeah. I, by the way, uh, Jonathan Weil, who co-wrote this article with Ben Eisen, uh, used to work with uh, Jim Chanis over at Kineco. So he's a guy who uh, understands this market uh, very well. You know, the other thing about this uh, that's interesting is the, the sort of the Silicon Valley uh, tech startup angle uh, about this. I was having this conversation on the phone uh, today with a, with a former securities lawyer uh, talking about how very rare it is for people to have more than uh, if you're a couple that the FDIC cap is $500,000, $250,000 per person. It's very rare. I think maybe middle-class people think that wealthy people keep you know millions of dollars in cash in the bank. Almost no one keeps that much cash in the bank as an individual. Uh, you'd put it in a certificate of deposit. You'd have your brokerage account. You have your uh, you have your uh, your primary residence, your secondary residence. It's very rare uh, for people to keep that much bank and uh, that much cash in the bank. However. Silicon Valley companies that need liquidity, that need access to cash, would be much more inclined to do it. The other interesting thing about this article, uh, the angle that I thought was very interesting, uh, was Gary Tan. I want to just read this here. Gary Tan, president of the startup incubator Y Combinator. By the way, Gary Tan is an excellent guest. He's been on Real Vision with us before. Great insight into what's happening in the Valley. I'm going to continue with the article. Posted this internal message to founders in the program, quote, we have no specific knowledge of what's happening at SVB, but anytime you hear problems of solvency in any bank and it can be deemed credible, you should take it seriously and prioritize the interest of your startup by not exposing yourself to more than $250,000 of exposure there. As always, your startup dies when you run out of money for whatever reason, close quote. That's a very strong statement, and the implication seems pretty clear, which is, hey, you're a startup. You got a lot of money uh, over an SVB. Get it out. Yeah, uh, my understanding is that the average account value uh, at Silicon Valley Bank was something like five million dollars. Like there was a, they had an abnormally large number of um, uninsured deposits. I, that's just what I what I've heard today. Don't know. Right. I haven't checked the numbers myself. I look at it as as we spin it forward, um, going back to our big theme when it comes to QT and it comes to this part of the tightening cycle is the digestion of duration. So the Fed's pushing, the Fed's uh, forcing the Treasury to push more duration out to the market. Like I said, Yellen was paying down the TGA to sterilize QT. She was also issuing short-term bills. That's over. This this quarter has been a lot more long-term issues. Been forcing the Fed's hand. TGA will come down later in the year, so the Fed will be forced to push duration out in the market. Look at what's going to happen as they liquidate Silicon Valley Bank. All those long-duration securities they hold, all that MBS they hold. I believe was 80 billion of MBS is now going to have to be sold into the market. So you have the Fed theoretically doing QT at the same time, this bank, the 16th largest bank in the country is being liquidated and those securities are being sold out into the market. So this is kind of like a double QT. It's just QT on steroids with when, with you, when you look at the duration channel, which is what we think is ultimately the most impactful channel for this uh, for Fed balance sheet operations. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
And it all seems to come back to QT. Talking of which, I wanted to take a look at a clip uh, from a show airing on Real Vision today uh, from our series, How to Un-F Your Future. Part five will be extremely different in 30 years. The guest here is Alex Gurevich, and the host is Brent Johnson. This aired on Real Vision Essential today. Let's take a look at this because it speaks precisely to the points that you were just making, Warren. Well, I think government, I think of governments and central bankers as market players. They're just one of the market forces. Yeah. I mean, you have to, so when people say like they're manipulating markets, they're breaking markets, no, they're just coming into markets. I mean, uh, when you, with, with central banks, you get what you get. So the federal reserve is a monopolistic issue of dollars. So they regulate the cost of dollars. They sell them, they buy them through right. treasuries. They raise the cost of dollars, whatever. So if you're trading in dollars, you're essentially buying their product. So it's like when you're using iPhone, you're like in with Apple, right? Now you're doing like, yeah, you have your laptop, you have your iPhone, you have your iPods, iPads. I don't even know all those terms that exist, right? And then you go to them to fix it if it's broken, right? Where do you go to fix your Mac laptop? You go to Apple store. Yeah. So, so you kind of have to know that like, you trade in dollars, you're, you're working with a product of central banks. So you have to account for what they're going to do. All right, a terrific metaphor there with Alex Gurevich uh, talking about comparing the Fed to Apple. Listen, no matter how much you love the Apple ecosystem, and I love the Apple ecosystem, there's always Android, there's always Windows. You got to remit your taxes in U.S. dollars. Uh, so the monopoly that the Fed has there is obviously much more powerful. Uh, Warren, let me uh, shift gears here and ask you this. Uh, obviously, we've unpacked a considerable amount of what's happened here in the past, where we got, how we got to where we are today. What are you going to be looking at? What are your key indicators in the future that are on your dashboard to see where this is going next? Okay, so I think the fo focus going forward needs to really be in the housing market. Um, uh, you know, with let's what's been whipping the markets around this year is this recession timing narrative that has shifted wildly with each calendar month. So we came into the year, it was the December, it was a imminent recession. Everyone was expecting an immediate recession 2023. January, we had the soft landing narrative, which is basically we're not going to have a recession. We're going to slow down and avoid recession. And then February was no landing. Now we're back to landing. So it all comes down to when is that recession going to happen? In our view, if you want to pinpoint the timing of a recession, there's a few ways, but the most important in this cycle to me is the residential construction market. And specifically, we're looking at residential construction payrolls. And if you go back in time, residential construction payrolls, just to not to bury the lead, just what is what are we looking for? An eight to 10% decline in residential construction payrolls presages every recession. And that's what we'll be looking for. So, so that's, that's it, that's your key headline number. That's the number one thing on your dashboard that you're looking at. Right, and there's a whole lot of stuff that rolls up into that, but that's the number one thing, is construction payrolls need to go down. And if you wanna have a recession, you wanna look at the most leading, the, the bleeding edge of a recession in the most interest rate sensitive sector is the housing market. And we've seen some cracks forming there, but we haven't seen any layoffs yet. Those construction layoffs generally lay, lead uh, overall non-farm payroll layoffs by about four months historically through the cycle but they're reliable. Once you get an eight to 10% decline in residential construction payrolls, you end up in a recession. So it's been a lot, we've spent a lot of time as a firm thinking about a couple of different things. How can the housing market save us from a recession and enter into a soft landing, which we assign a very low probability to that event, like 20% max. 
And then more importantly, what does, uh, how do we best determine when we'll hit that eight to 10% threshold? Our best guess is that it will be this year, it will be in Q4 of this year. So that's what we're thinking is that you have something like uh, at risk of being too precise, something like a November 2023 recession beginning due to the uh, weakness showing up in housing and residential construction payrolls. Warren, we've got about two minutes before we transition over to the second half of this show uh, when we switch gears from here on YouTube over to the Real Vision platform. Uh, final thoughts for people who are watching us on YouTube right now. What is the most important thing that they need to look at going forward and how should they interpret it? I go back to you need to have watch the Fed cycle, watch how residential construction employment and watch forward earnings. Those are the three things I would be looking at. We haven't talked much about forward earnings. We'll talk about the other things. If October was the low, then you would expect to see forward earnings hook higher right around now. You know, they've kind of stabilized this year. Some people are getting optimistic, but I don't think it qualifies yet. So you would want to see forward earnings head higher to confirm October as the absolute low for the cycle. That is not what I expect to happen. I think we'll make new lows later in the year around the time of that recession that I just laid out. But I'm always looking for ways I could be wrong. We're kind of uh, uh, paranoid over here at 314 Research. So we're always asking, how can we be wrong? We'll be watching earnings. And if earnings tell us that we're wrong, then we'll change our position. Well, you're in a business where a little paranoia goes a long way uh, and it can be a kind of a good thing. What about those other two indicators? Well, okay, so residential construction employment, again, want to be eight to 10% lower from in total payrolls. Really, if you want to get a little bit more fine grain, things are going to lead that. New housing starts, which have already started rolling over. And we've shown that when housing affordability goes off the rails like it has right now, new the average real house payment in the U.S. is around $3,000 a month. The average over history is like $1,600 a month. Remember, that's real. That's adjusted for inflation. So anytime you go above $2,000 a month, that's highly unaffordable for the, for the housing market. Housing starts to crash. We've already started to see that. So that's factor number one when you're trying to determine when do these construction payrolls roll over. Factor number two is this massive backlog of homes that we have coming off the pandemic. Now, this, everyone knows supply chains have gotten really messed up and that it took longer to build a home. Our estimate is that it went from 11 months to construct a home to 14 and a half months after the, and during the pandemic. So you have to see us work through that backlog of houses under construction and where do we see those new starts combined with that uh, time to build a home. That's where we go to November. It's a little bit of a longer cycle than most people expect. That's where our work suggests the recession begins. So eight to 10 percent decline in construction payrolls. And finally, the Fed cycle. I think the big one is going to be um, when we come out of the news of this week, uh, how does the Fed take it in? We have CPI next week, which is huge. But I think when we hear from the Fed after the next meeting, maybe at those minutes, it will be really important to hear if they if they tip their hand on QT at all if they acknowledge maybe this um, burgeoning uh, contagion or financial risk that's in the, out in the markets, that's part of the Fed cycle, I think, that's really important here. So if they continue on the path that's suggested where we go to five and a half, and now everyone was saying 6% this morning, uh, yeah, we're, that, we're gonna have a rough time. I don't think the market bottoms in the middle of an aggressive Fed hike cycle, which is what you would have to have had happen in October for that to be low. So those are the three things we're watching. 
Okay, so that wraps up the first half of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're going to continue the conversation with, with Warren on the Real Vision platform. If you're not a member, click in the link or scan the QR code on the screen and join the Real Vision community. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.